Our Father, you are holy. God, we call upon you and call for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, God, we pray that you would take uh, all that we offer to you in this worship gathering, that you would take it as worship, that you would take it as something to cherish. And God, we pray that you would use this time to form us and shape us into the people you call us to be. God, take your scripture and the prayer you taught us to pray and help us be more like you and more like your hope for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Maybe see you. Good morning again. So the presidential election is over, and it's definitely been a unique election year. And I was trying to think through early on in the planning, you know, like what we would do this morning. But as the, you know, elections start to get closer and closer to election day, and it became clear that things were going to be close and complicated, I thought, well, we could just cancel chapel since people are going to be staying up late. I don't know if you're like me, but... Probably couldn't help but staying up late um, to see results, and then you'd be too tired to come to chapel. But then I thought, you know, people just love that chapel is required, and they just really want to come to chapel. And I was like, I don't want to mess that up for them. So I said, no, we'll keep chapel going. And then I thought maybe we could just open up the altar for anyone who, you know, maybe made a negative comment to someone in the past year on social media regarding their political affiliations and all of that. And I thought we could just let it be. People come up to the altar, ask for forgiveness. But then I thought, if we're going to get out by 11.15, can't do that. <laughs> so that would take all day. I'm just kidding a little bit. But actually, in a second, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you saw a rude or mean-spirited comment or fight among your friends on social media in the last year that had something to do with the presidential election. Keep them up. Look around. This is a unique election year. You can put them down. I mean, the day after an election is normally a little interesting. Um, and you're kind of expected to just move on. And if you talk about it at all in a worship gathering, you're supposed to just say something nice and really apolitical and then move on. Uh, I even saw a pastor post on social media like, I really hope that now we can only talk about things that are not political and uh, we can all get along with our lives. And I thought, that's interesting. But see, I don't know about that. I can't just move on. And I can't say something apolitical because Christianity is political. Following Christ is a political decision. I'll say that again. Following Christ is a political decision. It's not a decision toward our typical American politics of Republican or Democrat or left and right, but it is very much a political decision. 
We often forget that. But I want to share a story of someone who recognized that following Christ is a political decision. His name is Herod I, also known as Herod the Great, or King Herod. Now, the Lord's Prayer is found in Matthew chapter 6. The story of King Herod is just a few pages before that in Matthew chapter 2. King Herod, he was the person who was sent by the Roman government to rule over Judea, which is the particular area of the Roman Empire that was populated by the Jewish community. And he was known for his successful building projects during his reign, including the expansion of the the main temple in Jerusalem. But he was also known for being a bit off the handle when he wanted to get things done. And in many ways, his role was to keep fellow Jews in control for the Roman government. And according to the first century historian named Josephus, Herod's other nickname was King of the Jews, because that's kind of where he ruled over. That was his nickname. People thought of, called him that. Now, of course, he wasn't the Messiah or the King of the Jews that everyone was waiting for, uh, but he did have that nickname. In fact, Judea was often referred to as the Herodian kingdom within the Roman Empire. Now, basically, Herod had a unique status among Jewish people. He may just be the middle person between Jews and the Roman government, and he could be considered the Roman government's puppet. But even that came with a certain power that he cherished, and it wasn't something he wanted to give up. So with that in mind, let me read Matthew 2, 1 through 6. It says... After Jesus was born in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come up to worship him. Now when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. So, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, let me just kind of help you make sense of that. Imagine that you're King Herod, and some folks come rolling into your city, into the place that you are overseeing. And you're known as king of the Jews. And they tell you that they heard the true king of the Jews, the Messiah, was born somewhere within the vicinity. Imagine that. Imagine if if you were King Herod and you were told that. Of course you'd be thinking, okay, people might turn to that person for leadership and reject the Roman Empire. And you, King Herod, would have failed at your one job of keeping folks in control. So what do you do? Now, I think you should read the story in Matthew for the details. But I want to just spoil it for you. Spoiler alert. (laughs) He sends out an order to kill all boys in and around Jerusalem who were born uh, within the last two years. That's what he does. Out of fear that this king of the Jews is somewhere around, he says, let me just kill them off. Let me do all I can. His response was violence. Isn't that interesting? 
It's not that he doesn't believe Jesus is the true king or the Messiah. It's not like he doesn't believe it. Rather, he believes it so much that he responds with violence. Let me put it another way. King Herod knew that following Christ is a political decision and would call for a new way of life. And he wasn't ready to see people do that. He wasn't ready for that. He wasn't ready to give up his own power, his own prestige, to let the kingdom come. Now, all throughout Matthew's gospel, we find this theme of Jesus as the ruler of an alternative kingdom. We see that throughout Matthew. Uh, You could even describe the gospel of Matthew with that in mind. It's here in the Herod story, but it continues all the way even in crucifixion uh, for Jesus, even in Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, Matthew 27 says that the very reason for crucifying Jesus is the fact that people consider him king of the Jews. And they even nail those words above him on the cross. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. They nail it there to both mock him and to name his charge. There is no question in Matthew's gospel that following Christ is a political decision. It's actually a pretty risky political decision. So in Matthew 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, he is guiding them to pray in a manner that is risky. It's risky. It's a prayer that's intermingled with politics. It's not simply praying, Lord, bless our nation, right? It's kind of easy to do. Lord, bless our nation. It's not saying that. In fact, it's almost a lament about their nation. Rather, it's, Lord, let your kingdom come. It's declaring that our kingdoms are not quite cutting it. Our kingdoms keep messing things up. Our kingdoms keep trying to put us in boxes and divisions where we don't belong. Our kingdoms ask us to choose between leaders that make us uncomfortable and challenge our integrity as Christians who are committed to holy living and love for the most vulnerable, whether that means refugees, children, or the yet-to-be-born. Our kingdoms are obsessed with commercializing our passions and longings and giving us a cheap product in return. Whether they're asking us to chant about making our kingdoms great again or about how our kingdoms are stronger together, our kingdoms continually fall short of who God is and how God hopes for us. To pray your kingdom come is very much a political statement. And following Christ is a political decision. The question is, well, what does that decision look like? What does it look like? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that the politics of God are wrapped up in American politics. In fact, we've seen fellow Christians in America make that mistake over and over again. An example can be found in the story of the Liberty Memorial, which stands in Kansas City, Missouri. I think we have a picture of it. It was built to commemorate World War I, which at the time was commonly called the War to End All Wars. It's interesting. 
Author Mark Quantrum explains the people of the city were so enamored with commemorating the historic event of what they believed to be the last war ever that they were able to raise $2 million in 10 days to build this memorial, okay? So the war ended in uh, 1918, and they began this campaign to raise money in 1919. In 10 days, they raised $2 million uh, because people were, were so excited that there would be no more wars again. And after they raised the money, it be, the project began in 1921. It was completed in 1926. And during the dedication, people spoke excitedly about how God ordained the progress of America and Western civilization. They really did believe that the United States was bringing about God's kingdom and that God wanted to do something with the United States more than any other country in the world. There was a great deal of excitement and optimism about America being the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting that they assumed no other conflict was going on in the world, even at the time, simply because they sensed victory in this particular war? It's not only optimism, it's arguably a bit arrogant and a bit myopic. But, but then three years later came an economic depression, and then 12 years after that came the Second World War, and the reality of the Holocaust, and the reality that human beings can find themselves somehow wrapped up in a movement that's destructive to fellow human beings, and not even know it's happening until it's too late. The optimism about human progress faced a deep challenge. Funding for the Liberty Memorial faded. The structure piled on a lot of wear and tear over 50 years of deferred maintenance and it was officially closed in 1994. Now, tax revenue came in, was, was used to fix some things up, and it was reopened in 2002. And in 2014, it was named a national monument and actually has a really cool World War I museum now. But the whole point of Liberty Memorial disappeared. It began as an announcement that the United States had inaugurated the kingdom of God that through the war that ended all wars, the kingdom of God is, well, here, within our borders, within our land, because of what we've done. It is a story of misunderstanding what it means to pray for God's kingdom to come and what it means for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And since then, we've seen theology take some interesting turns. As a result, our society has given up on this hope. In many ways, we've resorted to believing that God's kingdom has to remain separate from what happens here and now. So it's like this major pendulum swing. It's the idea that my Christian life deals with my soul and my political life and my, my everyday life deals with my body. My body is, well, for the state for the here and now, and my soul is for something else, it's for the kingdom. And we let all the divisiveness of society creep into our lives and divide us because it divides our bodies. It divides our here and now. We've let that happen. I think the toughest things of the last two years has been seeing Christians go at each other because of political parties. I mean, have we stopped to recognize that neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party is Christian? 
Both are deeply flawed. We let partisanship divide us. And when we do that, we lose. The other thing has been the fact that Christians have been felt forced to vote for a candidate, whether left, right, that sometimes they're like, I don't even know if I want to vote, but it's what I have to do. It's been an interesting time as we've given up on this hope for God's kingdom to be here on earth as it is in heaven. And we've, let, we've you know, relegated that to something of the unseen. But the kingdom of God is not limited to the spiritual realm. We find all over scripture that the kingdom of God is declared to be at hand, that the kingdom of God breaks into the here and now, that the kingdom of God is not just a statement of what could be, but a call upon our lives to how we ought to live. It's a statement upon our lives of where we go. It's a statement upon the lives of those who are seeking a life with Christ. It is a political statement about who we can be. The kingdom of God is not limited to the spiritual realm. But the kingdom of God is also not limited to our national borders. And that's really been one of the big problems that we've had. Is when we, we begin to think about what God can do in the world, how God can be at work, we begin to think within the borders that have been created for us. But the crazy thing is, at the heart of the gospel is this declaration that all people from all countries, from all backgrounds, from all races, from all experiences, from all genders, all people are invited to be a part of the people of God. All people. We have a responsibility whether to accept that. It is a decision to make, yes or no. But all people are, are invited. And what that means is the kingdom of God is not limited to national borders. The kingdom of God is not limited to who is or who is not president of the United States. The kingdom of God is not limited to who calls themselves fellow Americans. In fact, the kingdom of God makes us brothers and sisters with people in Afghanistan, with people in Iraq, with people in Mexico, with people across the sea and people across the street and people across town and people we thought we would never sit next to. The kingdom of God calls us to rethink it all. The kingdom of God is not defined by a freedom created through our own means. The kingdom of God is created through a freedom found in Christ that lets us break through the boundaries and borders and boxes and labels and feelings of being forced to do this or do that. The kingdom of God is a call to a way of life. And throughout scripture, we find the kingdom of God described a few different ways. The kingdom of God, we see it as a banquet. We see it as a wedding feast. We see the kingdom of God as this gathering of people from all tribes, all languages, all nations, worshiping Christ together. We see all these different images and ultimately what it's pointing to is just a different way. And we cannot find that way through any 
nation or country of the earth. And for us to call upon God for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven is to actually think beyond our borders. It really is. And it's hard for us to accept that because our borders is how we, it's what we, how we think. But we have an opportunity to get to know people, get to know each other in a way that, that goes beyond those borders. You know, when we, when we talk about God's will to happen on earth as it is in heaven, we tend to confuse God's will with whatever happens, right? So if this happened, then it's God's will. But the fact is that some things happen in our lives and in the world that are not God's will. Suffering, hate, discord, lots of things. And ultimately, God's will is made known in the cross. It's about bringing life out of death, resurrection out of crucifixion, community out of chaos. This is how God is present in the world. This is God, how, how God makes God's self known. God is still the God of transformation. We heard Lamoris Crawford's story the other day about how he sees himself as a miracle. He shouldn't even be standing, shouldn't even be alive. God is still the God that brings miracles in our lives. God is still the God that wants to shape us and form us into a particular way that we haven't fully seen yet. We've only seen glimpses. God is still the God who meets us in the messiness and points us to the kingdom. God is still actively present. God is the one who endured the cross. God is the one who made life out of what was death. Following Christ is a political decision to not be bound by the kingdoms of this world to not be bound by the divisions of this world. Galatians 5.13, it reads, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. The freedom we are offered in Christ, the freedom we're called to lean into in the kingdom of God, is a freedom that says, you know what? We're not going to let the divisiveness rule us. And we're going to find a way through it. We open chapel with a song. I know that we're running low on time. It's okay. Um, I think that's okay. Uh, we're running low on time, but we sang a song in the beginning of chapel that we didn't make everyone sing because it's hard to sing it. But right now we want to sing that song. And we're going to sing that song. We're going to stand. We're going to sing it. And it, it may be a struggle, but at the end of it all, our call is to actually find a way to serve each other, to see each other's perspective, and to hope for the kingdom. There is no political perspective that holds the kingdom. There is no political perspective other than the perspective of the kingdom that can define the kingdom. Right now, we're in a strange place. Uh, someone was elected president who's known for a character that reflects little of Christianity. There could be political policies that may connect, but what he's known for is really raising a lot of questions about who Christians, how Christians are to think about the President of the United States. But let's be honest, our hope is not in who the President is. Our hope is not in the personal life decisions or the public life decisions that the President makes. Our hope is in who Christ is and who Christ is forming us to be. And that is made known through the kingdom of God. Let's stand and sing.